Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Murder Mile, a true crime podcast, an audio-guided walk, featuring many of London's untold, unsolved and long-forgotten murders, all set within and beyond the West End. Today's episode is about Victor Castigador, a liar, a thief and a deluded fantasist who held such a petty grudge having been rejected for a promotion in a West End arcade, that his simple plan for some quick cash would leave two innocents fighting for their lives and two others dead. Murder Mile is researched using authentic sources. It contains moments of satire, shock and grisly details. And as a dramatization of the real events, it may also feature loud and realistic sounds so that No matter where you listen to this podcast, you'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael. I am your tour guide. This is Murder Mile. Episode 98. The Petty Grudge of Victor Castigador. Today... I'm standing in Gerard Street, W1, one street north of the charred remains of Reginald Gordon West, two streets west of the shooting of Michael Barry Porter in the Rosendale Club, a few doors north of the stabbing of David Knight in the Latin Quarter, and 200 feet west of James MacDonald, the bank robber who may not have known that he was robbing a bank. Coming soon to Murder Mile. To most visitors, Gerard Street is commonly known as Chinatown, as although this area consists of Rupert Street, Newport Place, Newport Court, Lyle Street, Coventry Street and bits of Shaftesbury Avenue and Wardour Street, as the most central and decorated part, it's also the most visited. After the Blitz bombing by the German Luftwaffe of the city's largest Chinese enclave in East London's Limehouse Docks, By the early 1970s, a few seedy side streets south of Soho had spawned into a new Chinatown. Looking less like a real street, and more like a tacky theme park ride 
designed by a colorblind architect who was obsessed with dragons, lanterns and pagodas. This pedestrianized street is full of the staples of Chinese life, such as restaurants, supermarkets and betting shops. But as if this oriental experience isn't confusing enough, a demented ex-Disneyland designer has added a few weird flourishes, like a slew of non-Asian buskers, such as an Elvis, a Bee Gee and an Edith Piaf, and several characters in dirty threadbare costumes, including a Spider-Man, a Pikachu and two Mickey Mouses. On the corner of Wardour Street, at 23 Gerrard Street, sits a four-storey, wedge-shaped building with three nondescript white-fronted offices above, and on the ground floor, an amusement arcade called Play to Win. With large frosted windows plastered with gambling symbols on both sides and illuminated by flashing neon signs, through the red Doric pillars of the corner door echoes the moan of cheesy pop music, the tinny tunes of slot machines and the occasional machine gun thrum as a few pounds are excitedly pooped out, only to be ploughed back in before the supposed winner can even crack a smile. All this colour and sound suggests fun, but this is also a place of loss. Not just of money, but of life. As it was here, on Sunday the 2nd of April 1989, that Victor Castigador, a small security guard with a big grudge, would turn a very simple robbery into one of West London's most horrific mass murders. Open any trashy tabloid newspaper or turgid true crime book and you will see the same lazy phrases trotted out again and again to describe Victor Castigador. He was mad. He was bad. He was pure evil. The man was a maniac. Many sources will gleefully tell you that the Spanish translation of his surname means the punisher or the enforcer, as if a killing spree was part of his birthright. And even though many writers still regurgitate the same tired facts that this so-called killer from Manila was a violent and ruthless assassin for either the Philippine commandos, the president's death squad, or the regime's secret police. Even though not a single shred of his sinister history can be proven, every lie which emanated from his mouth is still rehashed even years after his incarceration and his death. So why do we accept it? Firstly, it makes for a more exciting story. Secondly, as he's dead, almost anything can be written about his life without legal ramifications. Thirdly, most readers believe that if it's in a book, then it must be true. And finally, because no one wants to believe that a person so ordinary could perpetrate such a brutal and horrifying crime over a grudge so petty. But he did. The rage, the resentment and the rejection had built up for decades. And yet sometimes all it takes is a single spark to turn a tiny flame into an inferno. 
So who was Victor Castigador and why did he kill? Born in 1954, Victor Morales Castigador was raised in Quezon City, a densely populated metropolis in the Southeast Asian country of the Philippines. As an archipelago of more than 7,000 islands between Japan, Taiwan and Indonesia, being surrounded by some of the world's most active volcanoes, the Philippines is prone to earthquakes and typhoons. But as the fifth most populous country, it's not just geologically unstable, but financially and politically. As spoils of the Spanish Empire, the Philippines had been fought over by countless invaders for the last hundred years, from the Spanish to the Americans to the Japanese. And although the Treaty of Manila saw this newly independent country become a democracy, like so many others, it soon slid into a dictatorship. Raised in a period of political upheaval, as a poor boy from an impoverished background, very little is known about Victor's family, his upbringing, and therefore almost nothing has been documented. Being small and skinny, Victor was pushed around and bullied by the bigger boys. Seen as insignificant, in a world where men and boys needed to be physically strong to succeed, this little sprat was easily forgotten, often neglected, and readily angered and hurt by the constant rejection. To stand his ground and gain the respect that he craved, Victor would assert his dominance over those who dared to say no. By the mid-1960s, as President Ferdinand Marcos and his wife Amelda exposed to the cash-strapped country their hopes and dreams of a better future for everyone, only to embezzle billions of dollars of public funds to live a lavish lifestyle. Being in his early teens, Victor dreamed of a better life. As a small kid, keen to flee his bullies, Victor worked out, hoping to make up for his lack of height with width. And although he bulked up to become a thickly set teen, he wasn't physically imposing, as this short squat guy, with a boyish face, long black hair, and a feeble goatee beard, was barely five foot tall. Following the state of martial law declared by President Marcos in 1972, as imposed by his brutal army and his sinister secret police, being an adult with dreams of respect, control, and the authority which comes with a rank, a title, and a crisp black uniform. Age 21, Victor applied to both forces, but was rejected. Having claimed to anyone who would listen to his lies that he had joined the army, the police, and a quasi-military death squad, given that the minimum height requirement for a Filipino soldier in the 1970s was 5'4", and for a policeman, it was 5'2". As he was too short, partially deaf owing to a childhood infection, had only ever worked as a diver, and he lacked the basic literacy skills for an administrative role, it's more than likely that his career in uniform was as a security guard. By 1983, the year that the political rival of President Marcos was conveniently assassinated, 29-year-old Victor 
who described himself as a part-time diver and a sort of policeman, befriended Michael and Jacqueline Haddon, two expats living in the Philippines whose seven-year marriage was coming to an end. Beguiled by his charm and his mystery, Jacqueline and Victor began an affair, and having returned to England in 1984, they set up home in the coastal village of Middleton-on-Sea. In October 1984, their son Adam was born. In August 1985, Victor and Jacqueline married. In October 1986, as the Philippines erupted in a people's revolution after the corrupt election and subsequent death of Ferdinand Marcos, their daughter Robin was born. But being a short-tempered and jealous man who beat Jacqueline and ill-treated their two toddlers, she told him to leave and they divorced. As a UK citizen, by the winter of 1986, Victor had moved into a relative's flat at Coventry Cross, a council estate in Bow, East London. Being too small for a career in the British military or the police, he headed into the West End in search of a job. Victor Castigador, a short, stocky bully with a patchy work record, no known convictions and a habit of lying to mask his inadequacies, had found work as a security guard in a low-rent amusement arcade at the edge of Chinatown. He was solid, prompt and ambitious. But four years later, in that basement, all because of a petty grudge, this so-called assassin would kill. Life was uneventful at the Leisure Investments Amusement Arcade at 23 Gerard Street. Open from midday to midnight, Monday to Sunday, with a strict over-18s-only policy, the arcade consisted of two ground-floor rooms crammed full of the flashing lights and tinny tunes of 30 pinball, penny drop, video games and slot machines. Overseen by the duty manager, 24-year-old Yurev Alessandro Gomez from Chile, known to his friends as Yuri, the average day in the arcade was often routine, dull and predictable. At 11am, escorted by one of two security guards, Yuri would deposit the night's takings at Lloyd's Bank in Piccadilly, whilst the second guard secured the arcade. As the cashier, 26-year-old Kenyan Deborah Bernadine Alvarez known as Debbie, ensured that the slot machines had enough coins for any payouts. At 12pm, as a simple security feature, the arcade's only entrance or exit, situated on the corner of the ground floor, was opened, and every customer was watched by security and filmed by CCTV. The cash box on each slot machine was alarmed, the door to the strong room below was locked, and the only other money on the floor was doled out in denominations of 10, 20 and 50p pieces by Debbie, while she was sat behind a secure metal cage. In the event of a robbery, all monies were kept to a minimum, and the owners had told their staff to offer no resistance to the robbers, as all losses were insured. With a high turnover of cash on the premises, 
Victor was one of three security guards who worked in shifts, with two on duty at all times. It was a simple job, with regular hours, nice staff, and an adequate wage. But as much as this barrel-chested boaster loved to strut about in his crisp black uniform, using his rank to assert a modicum of authority, the hardest part of the job was the boredom. Being stuck in two small rooms, 12 hours a day, seeing the same sights, the same faces, and the same routines. As a little man with big dreams and even bolder lies, his days had become dull. Every midnight, with the customers gone and the slot machines shut down, as one guard kept an eye on the arcade floor, a second guard would escort Yuri and Debbie down into the basement. Behind a thick steel door stood the strong room, a reinforced concrete hold, with no windows, no vents, and no way of breaking in. Inside of which was a six-foot square wire cage, where the takings were stored in a safe until the morning. And as no one but Yuri had the key, this messy basement also worked as a makeshift storeroom, stacked full of cleaning products, newspapers, and paints for general repairs. By 12.30 a.m., with the doors locked, the lights off, and the alarms set, the staff would all head home, only to start the whole process again the very next day. By March 1989, after three years at the arcade, Victor had developed a reputation as a bit of a bulldog. He was short but strong, fun but fiery, and was prone to snap when he was pushed too far. And although the staff had all been regaled with his fanciful stories, of how, as a commando, a secret police agent, and an assassin to President Marcos's personal death squad, that he had shot, drowned, and burned alive 20 people, nobody believed his lies. So although he considered himself good at his job, superior to the other two guards, 21-year-old Ambi Kalapana Anapayan, also known as Pan, and 28-year-old Kandaya Kananapathy Viniaga Morthy, known as Morthy, owing to his lack of literacy, his short fuse, and his abundance of lies, he was denied this leg up into a minor management role. Feeling spurned and angry at this rejection, Victor became lazy, abusive, and unreliable. So much so that by the end of March 1989, he was dismissed as a security guard at the amusement arcade. Anyone else would have found themselves another job. But Victor harbored a very petty grudge. On Sunday the 2nd of April 1989, just shy of midnight, the tiny shadowy figure of Victor Castigador skulked behind a brick wall in Rupert Court a thin, unlit alley 60 feet south of Gerard Street. With Chinatown shutting down after a busy day's trading, across the desolate street, he had a perfect view of the arcade. His plan was simple. With the customers gone, the door unlocked, and the staff cashing up two days' worth of takings as the bank was shut on Saturdays, 
ordered to offer no resistance to robbers, he would raid the safe, lock the staff in the strong room, and escape. In short, get in, get out in three minutes flat. Had Victor been a commando as he had claimed, he would have known that an oversized hood, a slipping scarf, and no gloves wasn't a great disguise. But he didn't. Had he been in the secret police, he would have known how to get a real gun rather than a child's plastic toy. But he didn't. And had he actually been a death squad assassin, he could easily have robbed the arcade single-handed. But he didn't. Instead, he roped in four useless youths who he knew. 17-year-old Calvin Graham Nelson, 19-year-old Paul Stephen Clinton, and tagging along for the ride, the excitement, and some easy money to be split five ways, their girlfriends, 17-year-old Karen Dunn and 20-year-old Alison Linda Woodside. As per usual, at 11.58pm, with both security guards on the arcade floor, as Pan got into position to lock the main door, and Murthy stood guard over Debbie and Yuri as they counted up the cash. Dashing across the unlit street, five figures stormed the arcade. Swinging open the frosted glass door, in an instant, the hard-fisted Victor punched Pan, knocking him to the floor, as Nelson and himself pulled pistols on the startled staff. Caught by surprise, overpowered by numbers, and aiming toy guns which looked real enough in the neon-bathed arcade. Yuri and his team offered no resistance as the bulldog-shaped man and his excitable gang of accomplices herded the trembling staff down the stairs into the concrete basement. Standing at the heavy steel door of the strong room, surrounded by the office supplies and paint pots of this badly used space, as Victor pressed the gun's muzzle against Yuri's neck, in his thick Filipino accent, the five-foot-tall, stockily-built body boy with the slipping disguise and the very familiar eyes curtly ordered Yuri to unlock it, which he did, and the staff were ushered inside. The strong room was cold and dusty. It was little more than a four-sided concrete shell, with a single metal door, no windows, no vents, and on one side, a six-foot square wire cage, which housed the safe. Ordered by the miniature masked marauder to unlock it, the second that Yuri unveiled the stash of cash within, Victor thumped his former employer hard across the back, flooring him, as the gang bundled £8,685 worth of used and untraceable notes into an anonymous black rucksack. Two minutes in, with the robbery over, to allow ample time for a clean getaway, knowing that the cleaners weren't due until 8am, the next part of their plan would give them an eight-hour head start. Inside the wire cage, Victor ordered his ex-colleagues to their knees. He bound their hands behind their backs, and to ensure that they couldn't escape till the morning, he would tightly wind the wire cage's lock with a metal coat hanger, 
and then lock the steel door of the strong room. By dawn, they would be cold, hungry and tired. But ultimately, they would be fine. It wasn't a great robbery, one which was devised by a military or criminal mastermind, but it was more akin to a thug nicking some easy pickings, having coerced some poor kids with a bullshit history and the promise of pocket money which may have seemed like a fortune. But it was littered with mistakes. The slot machines were full of cash, and yet he ignored them. The CCTV had recorded it all, and yet he didn't switch it off or remove the tape. With no gloves, the gang had left fingerprints everywhere. Having stolen the equivalent of £21,700 today, if evenly split between five, that was barely £4,500 each. And worst of all, even though their disguises were truly awful, it was practically impossible to hide the fact that their short, stocky, foul-tempered Filipino gang leader was a recently sacked security guard at the arcade called Victor Castigador. This was the moment that Victor should have fled, but he didn't. We know what happened next wasn't pre-planned, as he didn't come prepared. Whether he did this to protect his identity or as part of a petty grudge over a failed promotion is unknown. But seeing his old colleagues, tied up, helpless and kneeling, from a waste bin, he scattered piles of dry discarded paper around them. Down a drain, he emptied the only fire extinguisher until it was nothing but a dribble of water. And from a store cupboard, full of cleaning products and paints, he produced a one-litre squeezy bottle of white spirit. The staff screamed as Victor soaked all four from head to foot in the highly flammable liquid. Yuri yelled, How can you do this? These are people just like you. But his pleas fell on deaf ears. Even as his old work chum, Pan, begged for his life. Screaming, Don't light it. I would rather you shoot me. Besides, even if the gun had been real, Victor had no plans to give any of them a merciful death. As with gleeful cackles, he and Nelson fired a volley of flaming matches at the tinder-dry paper and volatile fluid. Getting to his feet, Murphy tried to stamp the matches out, but there were simply too many. And as Victor secured the cage with a coat hanger and slammed the heavy steel door shut, being saturated in a lethal accelerant and igniting in a fog of explosive vapours, the abandoned staff were left to burn alive. This wasn't the work of a professional assassin. This was a vengeful act of a petty-minded little man with serious psychological issues. Trapped inside an airless basement, with no vents to expel the smoke, or for their screams to be heard by the neighbours, four good people were subjected to a slow and painful death. As their lungs choked on the toxic fumes, their hair was scorched by the licking flames, 
and the intense heat stripped the searing flesh from their bodies. But if he had been a real assassin, knowing he had enough time, he would have stayed behind to make sure that the job was done and that all the witnesses were dead. But he didn't. The charred bodies of Pan and Murthy lay at the back of the wire cage, smoking, collapsed, and horrifically burned. As in their last moments alive, the two Tamil refugees who had fled the Sri Lankan civil war to begin a new life for their families, uttered a final prayer, exhaled, and expired. In the pitch-black basement, having freed his hands from behind his back, Yuri used his rubber-soled shoes to kick open the scorching heat of the wire cage. Describing the strong room as like an oven, each time he rolled on the floor to extinguish the hot blue flames which had enveloped his clothes that melted onto his skin, the searing heat reignited the fire as he felt his whole body disintegrate. Blinded, choking and exhausted, as Yuri dragged himself along the concrete floor, under a thick blanket of swirling flames and towards the impenetrable steel door, he tried to push the blistering hot handle, but with no key, he knew that he was trapped. And yet this door would be their salvation. Having dragged Debbie to his side, barely able to breathe, Amidst the acrid smoke and the poisonous fumes, a small but vital supply of air was seeping through the keyhole and the thin gap under the steel door. And although the hot metal blistered their lips, it was all they had to save them from death. That night, as two people died and two more were baked alive, Victor and his four compassionless cohorts Calvin, Paul, Karen and Alison celebrated their audacious robbery with a nice meal, a boogie at a nightclub and the next day they headed to Torquay for a holiday. There they drank, laughed and as a private joke they regaled their taxi driver with a rendition of the Beatmaster's tune Burn It Up. At 7.55am, eight hours later Smelling smoke, the cleaners called 999. And within minutes, firefighters from Shaftesbury Avenue Station were on scene and heading towards the basement. As they unlocked the steel door, everything was a smoldering black mess, all warped, charred and smoking. No one could tell a wall from a door or a box from a bench. But over the familiar smell of accelerant, they could also smell the overpowering and unforgettable stench of roasted flesh. Inside, amidst the darkness, on the scorched floor, lay the dark and lumpen shapes of four bodies, all black, silent and featureless. All four should have died, but somehow two had survived. And although both were in critical condition, Yuri was able to utter three simple words. 
Victor did it. All five were arrested a few days later in Torquay, and in a joint operation between the Devon and Met Police, they were escorted back to Cannon Road Police Station, where under questioning, Victor remained indifferent to the robbery, the injuries to his witnesses, and the callousness of his crime. On the 14th of April 1989, he was charged with one count of robbery, two counts of murder, and two counts of attempted murder, at Bow Street Magistrates Court, with a full trial at the Old Bailey one year later. At both trials, having sustained horrific injuries, with Yuri suffering 30% burns to his left arm, chest, right arm, and losing a lung, having inhaled scorching hot smoke, and Debbie with 28% burns to her arms, hands, back, thighs, lungs and losing almost all of her face. Through unquestionable strength, Yuri and Debbie testified against the accused, and on the 28th of April 1990, all five were found guilty. Calvin Nelson and Paul Clifton were convicted of robbery, murder and attempted murder. With Calvin sent to a Young Offenders Institute for life, Paul held in detention under Her Majesty's pleasure and both of their girlfriends, Karen Dunn and Alison Woodside, were found guilty of robbery. So cruel were Victor's crimes that James Mulcahy, Victor's own defence, said to the jury, It would be very surprising had you not come to the conclusion that he was a ruthless, callous and inhumane monster. The judge, Mr Justice Rogier, concluded, I find it almost impossible to understand a mind as evil as yours, and sentenced him to life in prison. Extended to a whole life tariff, meaning that he would never be released. On the 21st of March 2017, 62-year-old Victor Castigador died of a stroke. He was mourned by nobody. So as much as the trashy tabloids love to trot out the same tired story about the killer from Manila, who was supposedly a hired assassin for President Marcos. If you really feel the need to share his tawdry tale to impress your true crime chums, don't glorify his actions, his exploits, or perpetrate the same unproven twaddle which only spewed from his lying lips. Instead, remember him for who he was. A small, pathetic, mentally unstable liar who ruined four lives, and all because of a petty grudge. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. After the break, I shall do some more of this, a bit of that, some additional of the other, just as I did last time, only with the words in a slightly different order. And that... I will call Extra Mile. Ooh. Before that, a big thank you to my new Patreon supporters, who are Annette Milsom, David Evans, and Mandy Belshaw. I thank you all. I hope you enjoy all the extra goodies which come with being a patron, like location videos, exclusive crime scene photos, and special discounts of Murder Mile merch. Ooh. 
Yes, the list of benefits is endless. Murder Mile was researched, written and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult With No Name. Thank you for listening, and sleep well. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. <sighs> done. Done, 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 done. Open the windows, time to get some bloody air in. Oh, oh dear. Hello, everyone. Oh, dear, that's better. Bit of fresh air. Whoa. It may it may only be early in the morning, but it's 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 been a week of, of hotness, pure hotness. Hot, hot, hot. Going up to 30 degrees, 32 degrees in some places. So I've, I've woken up early to get this done, which is bad because there's bird song and the blackbird has been out there today and he's been really bloody mouthy so i had to close all the windows and doors and curtains and oh dear hang on oh that's better that's better there we go get some air in now get some air in lots of air unfortunately loads of people are taking exercise as well which is a good thing but loads of people walking past going oh marjorie do did you know about where they're, 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 they're? I have to say, people have some really dull conversations when they're when they're walking with their mates. <sighs> right. Um, not that my conversations aren't dull. They are. They are dull. Uh, even I bore myself sometimes. Right. <sighs> extra mile. Here we are. Extra mile. Here we are. This is extra mile, unscripted, unedited, waffle, blah, blah, blah. I'll add in some extra details about the case that couldn't get into the episode. Unless I edit it out of the early part, uh, I'm gonna put on. I'm gonna put on my tea now because I need a tea. I ran out of coffee halfway through. I always run out of coffee halfway through. So, hang on. 
mug of tea, mug of water. No, mug of water. Gonna have some nice Yorkshire tea, which is always good. Nice tea, nice and biscuity. Uh, nice, nice rich colour as well. We have some Yorkshire tea. Pop that in there. Right, good. That's in there. One sugar. Ah, <sighs> right. What's been going on? What's been going on? Oh, uh, so we had the uh, Meander Miles, the last two ones. I hope you enjoyed those. Something different to break everything up. It gave me a bit of time to research these next, this next bulk of, I think I've got, we've got another 12 to go in the section. Uh, so that gives me time. Just, just to, gave me like a week back just to do the extra research I need to do, get in there. And I've also sorted out some family stuff as well, which is important uh what else is going on uh the boats moved we got we got told to move even though there's no reason to move even though the canals were really thick and soupy and it was a nightmare because it's all full of weeds and yet the canal and river trust who run the waterways were like you need to move your boats and everyone was like we're trying but but the the, the water is full of weeds so every time we try and move it the propeller gets snarled up and then it stops the engine and if you stop the engine on a boat you don't have propulsion you also don't have a brake you also don't have steering which they they seem to forget uh but i did it i've i've shifted away i've headed somewhere else which is convenient because this week uh is as just mentioned like 30 32 degrees and i've hidden myself somewhere nice between between a big hill and a large lake and i'm surrounded by trees so yesterday even though like everyone was going it's the hottest day so far it was 30 i think it's 34 degrees in some places uh it was all right here it wasn't too bad i had all the windows and doors open it was nice and cozy and cool so that was really nice so uh i obviously i didn't notice it was too hot uh but the only problem is because uh, we had that that those 10 weeks of me being stuck in the same place which was nice nice i'd get no sun on the boat on one side for most of the morning but in the evening i'd get the hot sun so one side of the boat the paint is really quite badly cracked now which is real pain and because we were stuck i couldn't go and get any boat paint and i couldn't get any extra um wax for it so it's, it's one side is looking really bad so i spent quite a while out there with these little paint pots the boat paint is bloody expensive for a tiny pot like a third of the size of a coke can that's about 10 quid it's very expensive stuff like I've got loads of it. Like sometimes, like if I go and buy paint for the boat, I can come away easily with a bill for six hundred quid, and that's that's not enough to do the whole boat. That's just like, you know, oh, making it look nice. Anyway, what else is going on? Uh, news in the world: the pubs are opening up soon, Fourth of July. Way I know Americans are going to be going. Oh, great! It's Fourth of July, Independence Day. Sod that. It's more important over here. The pubs are opening. That's vital for us. We're looking forward to that. Be interested to see how they do it, how they do socially distanced pubs. I think if we have a good summer, that could help. And if the pubs have a big, big garden or something, or yeah, that could work. But mm, I don't know. Mm, we'll see. Interested to see how it copes in winter as well. Uh, so that'll be good. Probably won't go into the pub on the first day because it'll be full of bellends. Let's just be honest about that. Pubs are going to be full of bellends for the first two weeks. Ugh, as if they ha haven't had a pint. They'll be like, they're going, oh, it's delicious. Oh, I haven't had a pint in ages. It's like, mate, you have. You're Look at you, you're a fat bastard. You spent you spent the last three months drinking every day because you've had bugger all to do. And now the only difference is you're in a pub. 
Ugh. Anyway, uh, but we got that to look forward to. Um, I had a socially distanced picnic with some friends recently, so that was interesting. I, that's why I deliberately moved the boat so I could be near the picnic venue. Uh, uh, so I didn't have to get on public transport. Clever thinking. And then I cycled the rest of it. So that was very good. That was very good. Oops, here we go. Tea o'clock. Settle there. Weather's warm, so it's powdered milk time. Ah, whoa. Proper milk just doesn't survive in this heat. There we go, I'm gonna let that stew for a bit. Uh, haven't got a cake with me today because, uh, oh, there's a co-op near me, a coop. And uh, they've, they've been doing uh, these big, nice kind of apple pies in the metal tins that you can get. And it's only one twenty-five. and I thought, oh, I bet it's probably horrible. But actually, really nice pastry, nice thick pastry, nice apple pie, one twenty-five, a nice kind of, it's probably around, it's probably around 10 inches or something. Oh, I've been having that every night. A nice big, a quarter of that with bird's custard the new one that they've they've bought out in sachets that you don't need to do all the the you know in the old one you used to have to crush up the sugar and make sure there were no bits in it and then you'd have to get the milk really hot and you'd, and it was really complicated and you'd often get lumpy custard but they've bought out this instant custard that's brilliant it's all done for you and you just you just add water and you just stir it and you can't fail and oh so yeah so yeah the the fatness is getting back on uh so before while my tea is stewing uh what else coot update it's 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 rumpy pumpy season for the cooties so uh yeah opposite me is uh there's one family of coots which i think are mostly grown up and there's another lot that are about to get a bit rumpy pumpy i think they're a bit late to the season and there's some more hens that are getting a bit arsy as well they're all at it at the moment there's lots of fights going on there's normally a massive brawl outside the boat of like four or five coots really kicking the shit out of each other uh but there's lots of ducks as well lots of ducks around a lot of little ducklings um i was talking to another boater from a socially distance distance from each other the other day and he we both at the same time went oh wow and above us was a red kite uh and it did something we'd never seen before. It's, it's obviously red kite is kind of a bird of prey around here. Really big, really impressive. Uh, and we saw it dive down into the water and nick a fish. And we we never we've never seen one do that before. But that was very exciting. That that's how exciting my life is. Anyway, let's pick up the tea. Tea o'clock. Ah, oh, hot. Right. Oh. So, coming back, tea down. Oh, that's not a sound effect of a cup of tea going down. That is a real cup of tea going down. Oh. That was me slurping my tea. Right, let's do let's do the the questions, which I almost forgot to add to this, because obviously two weeks two weeks without murder mile, I'd forgotten that we've got to do questions. So, okay, we'll do the questions. I'll fill you in on some extra details, and then we'll come back. So, don't forget. Uh, some of these questions might not make it into the show uh, because I haven't edited the episode you've just listened to yet so that will that'll be like three, four days of editing so sometimes I take stuff out this is quite a long episode so I might take stuff out so the, the questions might not appear in the, in the episode so uh, yeah but if you are a Patreon listener 
patron subscriber, you get the unedited script. Ooh, I upload the script before I edit the episode, so you get to learn everything that no one else does, which is very exciting. So, whew, episode, episode? Question one, question one, here we go. What was Victor's middle name? Ooh, burpy. His name's not burpy. Ooh, I toast this morning, it's made me really burpy. I don't know why. Uh, question two what does castigador mean in spanish i've i've mentioned two versions but there there, there are other variations of what people say it means uh question three where did the other staff members of the arcade come from so just to remind you there were four other staff members that i mentioned yuri debbie pal and murthy where did they all come from? Three different countries. Uh, question four. Which alley off Wardour Street did Victor and his gang hide in before the robbery? Robbery. Uh, question five. What did Victor actually do as a job in the Philippines? Mm, it was briefly mentioned. Uh... Question six. What was the name of Victor's English wife? Coots of iron again. There you go. That's all they do all day. Is go... Oh, and the little baby ones are getting involved. They're having a, a bit of... Don't, don't carry, don't carry, don't touch him. Uh, question seven. What flammable liquid were the staff soaked in? That's question seven. What flammable liquid were the staff soaked in? Question eight. Roughly, how much money was in the safe? Uh, I've put two versions on there, so you can either do how much it was worth in 1989 or how much it was worth today. Question nine. Name Victor's accomplices. I'm going to be kind to you. You can just mention first names if you like. That's all I've put down as well. And question 10, a nice easy one. Mentioned it a couple of times, so it should be easy. What height was Victor? Victor! Uh, okay, let's go into some details that uh, may have been in the show, may not. Let's uh, have a look at this. So uh, I've put in a lot of stuff based on the uh, the time of the, the uh, robbery murder itself. So we can have a look at that. Uh, luckily, there was some. There was some good. Debbie gave a, a couple of um, interviews, but Yuri gave quite a really good one, quite a detailed one. So that's where we get a lot of the information about the various cases. Uh, unfortunately, the the original police files for this are in the National Archives, but they're not available for um, at least another eighty years. So uh, yeah, so that's a real pain. So to, so to investigate this one, I, I kind of had to use multiple sources, lots of news sources, which I hate doing because. I've gone through a lot of newspapers and gone, well, that's crap, that's crap. Do you know, you, you're able to balance things off. It's like simple details that they just got badly wrong. Like the date, even some of them got the bloody date wrong. Ugh. Anyway, um, so I've been checking a lot of this. So um, you said that when they were inside the the, uh, the strong room, it was, it was full of fumes. Uh, he helped Debbie to survive by dragging her to the keyhole. Uh, he said uh, there were, it was like a ball of fire. It was... It was like an oven. There was nowhere to go. I undid my hands and kicked my way out of the cage. My skin was on fire. 
fire. I could feel myself disintegrating. I rolled myself on the floor and the wall and put myself out. I managed to get my mouth near the keyhole. I kept going down for about 20 minutes, then coming back up again. Because as you remember, all the noxious fumes were above him, all the flames were above him. So the only place that he can really kind of uh, get some air is kind of close to the ground or through the keyhole. Uh, he noticed that Debbie's legs kept uh, were on fire. There were blue flames all over her body. He stretched out and put the fire out, uh, but then it caught again. He said that because um, it was so hot in there, every time they put themselves out, it, it just kept re reigniting. Um, let's see what else there is. Um, obviously, as mentioned, he was using the kind of the keyhole uh, to get the air because uh, that was going out through the basement and up the stairs, so there was a bit of fresh air going through there. Uh, as mentioned, there was no vents in the room. Uh, and Debbie, because she was collapsed on the floor, she was using the air from under the door, so that actually helped them. Unfortunately, uh, Pan and Morthy, the other security guys, had already died by that point. Um, it's unsure, because they seem to go catch fire first. It's uncertain whether there was more liquid on them or whether the matches caught them first or you know it's it, it's a little bit uncertain or whether the clothes they were wearing were, were more flammable because don't forget everyone's wearing clothes therefore uh, that's likely to catch fire as well um what else we got uh if you can imagine it must have been really horrible Do you know uh, not only are you in a room that you're trapped in not only is it dark not only is it full of uh, noxious vapours, so every time you breathe in, you know that you're breathing in things that things are going to kill you. As mentioned, Yuri had, every time he breathed in, he like he scorched the inside of his lungs, same as Debbie as well. You know, your skin's peeling off. And next to you as well, the two security guards who were already dead. So they died, apparently they died after about 20 minutes in there because uh, they caught fire really quickly. Uh, so imagine that you're stuck in a room with two people who are who are on who have burnt to death, but they're still on fire. They're still burning as well. There's nothing you can do about it. That must I mean that must be absolutely traumatic. Um, what else have we got? We've done that bit. Yeah, I've repeated that bit. Uh, what else have we got? Okay, yeah, uh, the next morning. So that would be the morning of Monday, the 3rd of April, 1989, at about 7.55 a.m. As mentioned, the cleaners turn up about 8 o'clock. Uh, two members of staff, the cleaners, arrive for the early shift and they smell burning. Um, they alerted the uh, firefighters, as mentioned, to Shaftesbury Avenue uh, Station. If you go back to the uh, the Chinatown episode... Um, uh, for Meandermal, you can see the distance on it. It's they're not too far away. So, uh, twenty-three Gerard Street, which is where the the arcade where this is, is at the start of the episode, and the fire station that we're called were right at the end. So it's literally it's four hundred four hundred feet, if that. But obviously, with no vents, no the no alarms went off, no vents, so there was no smoke coming out. No one could hear screaming from the outside. People had no idea that anything bad had gone wrong. But uh, obviously there was a real inferno going on inside. Uh, fire brigade turned up, opened the door. When they, they said that when they looked in there, they, they couldn't see anything at all because it was dark, it was charred, it was horrible. Uh, and then they could see bodies on the floor. And initially they thought that every, everyone in there was dead. They couldn't see how anyone could have survived because you know, they went, went in with breathing apparatuses and you know there was toxic fumes and it was really deadly to be in there. But they had survived. Debbie and Yuri had managed to survive. God knows how. Um, and as mentioned, 
uh, Yuri was able to say Victor did, did it, which was great, even though they, they couldn't actually uh, say... You know, the police couldn't just go out and arrest him immediately and say, well, this guy says this. They had, they had, they had to prove it. But, you know, um, Victor wasn't difficult to, to spot, even in a disguise. You know, he's short, he's stocky, he's Filipino, he's, his accent was specific, you know. Try and name, try try and see how many five foot tall, three foot wide Filipinos you know. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, um, Yuri uh, suffered thirty percent full thickness burns to his body, including the whole of his left arm from his shoulder to his fingers. Pat, there were patches of burns on his face, his right arm, his back, and his chest. He had severe internal burns from breathing in the scorching hot smoke. Uh, and when he went to court, uh, uh, whether he still is today, he was we wearing a leather glove on his left hand because obviously his his left hand is severely, severely burnt as well. Uh, what else was there? Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, he also suffered severe inhalation burn injury, which was compliment, com, complicated by his asthma and required immediate artificial ventilation by services. Uh, as of today, he only has one lung. Um, Debbie the cashier uh, sustained as mentioned 28% burns her face was essentially burnt off she had severe injuries to both arms and hands her back her buttocks and thighs uh, she also suffered severe internal burns to her upper airway and lungs um, uh, well sister yeah uh, it said that uh, she had uh, suffered severe smoke inhalation uh uh, which required immediate use of artificial ventilation. She was hypothermic when she was admitted to hospital. Um, I only briefly mentioned this, but the the escape of the prisoners, it, even though they they kind of put in that they had like an eight hour head start, did they really use it? No, they did not. So immediately after the murders, they went back to East London, back to Bow, where they all pretty much came from. Uh, they went out for a nice meal. They visited a nightclub to have, to have a dance. Then the next day, they went to Torquay, which is a nice seaside resort. Um, home of Faulty Towers, um, so they weren't wasn't really a hiding place. It was more really a holiday. As mentioned, there was a talky taxi driver who took them around town, and uh, he said they were singing a, pri a song called "Burn It Up" by the Beatmasters. Uh, I'll put a link to that on the on the website so you can hear what the song is. I probably can't aren't allowed to put it in the episode because of rights reasons. And when he asked what was so funny, because they were all laughing and joking about it, they said it was a private joke. Um, uh, hang on, where are we? Uh, it is said that they all laughed and joked about the horrific fate of their victims as they were be being driven from a pub uh, from a pub in a taxi. One of the women complained of being cold and the driver offered to turn on the heater. One of the youths joked, we don't want to burn... Ha 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 ha, and then all of all four of the passengers collapsed in la collapsed in laughter. Well, there you go. As you can see, that they were all very upset about the uh, about the incident, about the horrific injuries they'd caused, and uh, and they enjoyed spending the equivalent of about four and a half thousand pounds each. <sighs> really. Fifth uh, of April. So uh, two days later, the police were kind of. They still were uncertain about who these people were. They knew it was Victor, but they didn't know the others because obviously the the other 
four people, the young people, I'm not going to mention their names because it's in the quiz. See, I'm being clever. Uh, they didn't know who they were. They'd never met them before. One of them actually uh, had a prior conviction for robbery, but they didn't know it at that point. Uh, they were just kind of young people who Victor had picked up. It, bit bit pedoey, um, if I may say so. All of them were either between 17 and 20, and he was 34. Hmm. Time to grow up, Victor. If you hang, if you're 34 and you're hanging out with the kiddies, anyway, uh, they were arrested as mentioned a couple of days later in Devon and Cornwall in a joint operation between Devon and Cornwall CID. Um, they there were uh, various uh, addresses that were uh, checked and they were taken back to the incident room at Cannon Row Police Station. As mentioned, there were two trials. Obviously, you've got the one at the magistrate's court which is uh it's there to see if there was a case to go forwards and then you've got the 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 criminal trial uh so the first one was on the magistrate's court on the 14th of april so that is what's up less than two weeks after the uh after the murder uh victor was charged with the murders of both security guards um and the attempted murder of the two others as well as robbery i'm gonna have to be really careful here because the names are gonna Actually, no, I can use this. I'm going to use their surnames. Okay, I'm going to use their surnames to explain this. Okay. Uh, Clinton, who was one of the boys who, who was there, who uh, 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 he continues to refute the evidence of the victims and denies his involvement in setting alight uh, the four victims. In, in this story, I haven't added that he added in the flames because he does refute that. Uh, but again, this is more about Victor's story. Uh, he has expressed remorse about the deaths and stated that the offence disgusts him. What else we got? What else we got? Uh, all, f all four of the others, uh, the four, the young people, let's call them, uh, they all denied murder and attempted murder. The girls denied robbery. Um, I'm using their surnames again. Nelson and Clinton pleaded guilty to robbery only. On the first day of the trial, having initially pleaded not guilty to all charges, Victor Castigador changed his plea to guilty to two charges of murder, one charge of attempted murder of Yuri, uh, but said he was not guilty of the attempted murder of Debbie. Which is interesting, uh, obviously because we don't have access to the file, we can't find the reason why, it was never really explained. Uh, so as mentioned Victor was given a life sentence which was later extended to a whole life sentence which basically meant he would never leave prison ever and he wouldn't uh, we've already done the quotes from the um, uh, from his lawyer I thought that was interesting his lawyer his own his own defence counsel saying look this man clearly is what, how do you describe him described him as ruthless callous and an inhumane monster that's interesting. Uh, what else we got? Uh, yes, Debbie, so Debbie Alvarez, the the lady who was burnt in there, uh, she had to be taken to uh, Queen Mary's Hospital in Roehampton to have her nose rebuilt. Uh, I think there's, I've got a little bit more on them later on. Originally, this was going to be a whole story about Debbie. I thought, oh, that's the angle I want to take. It's just Debbie's story, but she's she's very um she she doesn't really say much she doesn't go out she really doesn't give interviews so there's not really a lot i can do which unfortunately is why i've had to make basis on victor's story but the more i looked into victor's life the more i was able to go hang on all these press 
stories are saying, oh, do you know, the killer from Manila, and a lot of them do say, just some of them rightly say, do you know, it's unproven, his background, but a lot of them just go with it. They go, yeah, he was a killer, he was a bad man. He killed at least 20 people. It's like, no, he didn't. It's like you're perpetuating lies because you can't be bothered to do the research, but that's what pisses me off. I've put it in this episode, but unfortunately people do think if it's written somewhere, it must be true. I had one guy on my tour ages ago, I think I've mentioned this before, and I do a whole section about how, how Jack the Ripper almost certainly didn't exist. There's a bit of a consensus out there between people who look into Jack the Ripper and they get, they go, Jack the Ripper probably didn't exist. It's more than likely it's media manipulation. It's birth of the tabloids, a birth of tabloid newspaper. They needed to sell a story to working class people. So what they did was, you know, they lumped together various murders. The the murders that happened in and around Jack the Ripper of the, these these ladies not unusual you can find them before and after jack the ripper there's they, but for some reason what they went you know they, they went oh well let's create um, a murderer around this so they it's more than likely to be uh media manipulation and kind of an interesting story that still works to this day but i did say so i, I said that on my on my tour and one guy turned around to me and he says i you can't say there is no jack the ripper i know there's a jack the ripper i know it because i read it in a book it's exact words i read it in a book oh. it's like people seem to believe that if it's in a book that you know when you're a writer you give a book in and then it goes to a team of people and all these specialists hoard around it and they go through every page and they double check every detail it doesn't happen it's the publisher relies on the author and, and hopes that the author has done their job properly but as we all know authors are every writer is biased every bi- writer's opinion every writer wants to tell you their side of the story and it's not about fact. I've I've used a book in Murder Mile uh, last series. I'm not going to say what the book is. And the reason, the only reason I used that book is because it was so dull. It was, it was, there was no story in it at all. It was clear that the guy had literally just opened up the archive files and literally just written it word for word and copied it down. I thought this is perfect for me. I know it's full of fact because there's no story in it there's no emotion but if you're trying to sell a sensational story you're going to manipulate the facts you're going to twist things you're going to you're going to edit things out you're going to bump things up so that's why you should never really trust anything in papers especially newspapers because it's a speed medium they have to get the story out quick and fast therefore they don't double check everything therefore especially in the 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 low rent newspapers the tabloids they tend not to care about information which is why you will notice things that they'll come out like remember years ago with matthew kelly poor old matthew kelly they they were like his house was rented out to a guy who turned out to be a paedophile and everyone went matthew kelly paedophile 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 look at him he's a paedophile as boxes were being taken out of his house they went look he's got a copy of dumbo he must be a paedophile he must use the copy of dumbo to you know lure in his children no matthew kelly it was a father with children he like most of us he has like cartoons or things like that but no it's the tabloids jumped all over his his career was fucked absolutely fucked ruined and did they apologize for it no i mean, well, actually did they were forced to but they'd used so many front pages to to demonize him and when the when the the judge had said look this is wrong you've got to apologize to him they put a tiny tiny little apology on page four page 14 or 17 on one paper just saying we got some details wrong and it's like you absolute shitbags which is why i don't use shite tabloids i also double check everything that all the other papers do as well right let's get into (laughs) 
this is the sound of me getting off my high horse. Right. Um, let's get into the bit that I didn't do in the story because I felt we'd. I, I was just focusing on the robbery, but there is a, an interesting part after this. So, as you know, uh, February nineteen ninety, Victor Castigador is uh, said he's originally given a life sentence, but obviously uh, Jack Straw, who was the Home Secretary, uh, this would be uh, about six. I think it was six years later after that, he decided that there was uh, quite a few people like Dennis Nielsen who should be put on a whole life tariff, which means they will never ever be released. Uh, Victor Castigador was one of seventy at that point who were uh, on a whole life tariff. So he was sent to HMP Full Sutton, but also HMP Long Larton. There was another prison as well, but I can't remember which one. Uh, Victor Castigador was sentenced to a second life sentence for murdering a prisoner in HMP Full HMP Long Larton. Victor Castigador used a stone wrapped in a pair of socks. Uh, to rain down what witnesses called full-velocity blows onto the head and body of a fellow inmate and convicted child killer, Sidonia Texiera, I've probably got that name wrong, who was uh, serving life for murdering his three-year-old daughter. Castigador had taken a rock from the prison aquarium and made threats to do something bad to his victim in the days leading up to the assault. Uh, obviously, in the press, people always go on about the fact that he was an uh, he was an assassin. Therefore, he used you know he made make, makeshift weapons. But if you look in any stories to do with a prison, you know that's it's an easy prison weapon. That's uh, or, or even in Borstal places like that. You know, you put something heavy like a pool cue into a um, into a, a sock. Therefore, you've got yourself a nice little cosh. It's nice and simple. So it's not really something uh, something that's amazing. That kind of makes him out to be a big great killer he's just a, just a deluded man uh castigador was handed another whole life term by mr justice haddon cave in birmingham crown court uh, uh whilst uh when he went to court for this obviously he claimed that as a former member of the filipino death squad he was only doing his job uh he told detectives i'm wrong to kill somebody but but it's my job he kept going on about this. He said, uh, uh, when I was in my country, I was a member of a liquidation squad. Sometimes you have to punish evil. It's all bollocks. It's all bollocks. The, the, everything that came out of that man's mouth was bollocks. But if you look on there, like, this is something that I don't think people have bothered to look at before. Like, all these newspapers have gone, oh, he was in the police, he was in the commandos, he was in the, you know, the Filipino death squad. But simple search by myself, just searching for... Um, height requirements and um iq requirements for police army uh any form of military in the 1970s in the philippines literally goes well he couldn't have been either he's too small and and he's he had no qualifications as well uh, also he was partially deaf in one ear uh which a lot of people don't mention about i picked that up in a, a medical report when he was in prison so uh all these little details that you know if you if you just focus on the little rather than focusing on what came out of his mouth because let's be honest look at any kind of serial killer or murderer can you trust what's coming out of their mouth no you can't which is why you need to be really careful uh, oh, all this bollocks in there he had a history of violence well i mean i mean he did he did he uh we we don't have a criminal record for whether he uh when he beat up his first wife and was cruel to their children i don't because we don't have access to a file we don't know whether that that was ever reported to the police but um his wife did say it was ha it happened it was on, it was on the the divorce 
proceedings. So that's why we know it was there. Uh, what else we got? What else we got? Uh, interestingly, uh, for um, two of obviously the, the 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 ladies involved in the robbery, they were released early. They only served. I think it was uh, one of them served three years in youth custody. The other served three and a half years in prison. It was because of the ages. What you know? Some were under eighteen. Some were over eighteen. Um, when the two men involved. Uh, in the murder uh, were to be released both Debbie Alvarez and uh, Yuri went to their um, uh, not the trial what's it called oh, uh, parole hearings and suggested that neither of them should ever be released there is talk that one of them has been released obviously the girls have but one of one of the men has been released as well it is believed I'm still trying to find that out uh, as of today this is from an old article, so uh, we're not too sure. I've I've researched them, but it's hard to see where, where they are today. And do you know what? I hope that both Yuri and Debbie are doing well and that they're surviving and f flourishing and do as well as they can. Uh, Yuri was left disabled by the incident. He has only one lung and is dependent on oxygen and has severe burns and scarring. <coughs> Debbie still suffers from injury injuries to her windpipe and is difficult to understand. She is severely disfigured and only leaves her house once or twice a week. Um, she constantly falls over because of the injuries to her legs and continues to suffer fractures to her feet because of these falls. That's quite sad, isn't it? It's like Eve, all these years later and you're still reminded of the horror that, that you went through. Uh, so yes, uh, 4th of April 2012, whilst at HMP Falls Sutton, uh, which was the maximum security prison where which uh, Dennis Nielsen was uh, at as well, because uh, obviously Castigador is a Category A prisoner. Uh, he was sent. Victor was sent to hospital after the prison GP suspected a stroke. Hotel staff treated him at the stroke unit, and he was returned to Full Sutton the next day. Uh, the GP diagnosed Castigador with hypertension. How would you ever guess that he had hypertension? Uh, and atrial fibrillation, an abnormal rapid heartbeat. Uh, he was prescribed antihypertension medication, which reduced his blood pressure and reduced the risk of another stroke. He refused treatment and monitoring. He was continued to do well until the time of his death. Mr. Castigador uh, died of a stroke on the Sorry, I'm just going through all these details. I'm looking at stuff going, hang on, that's... Oh, I've got stuff all over the place. Uh, they said his death was caused by a, a blood clot. Uh, caused by a blood clot in the artery. I've just realised in the episode I've got his day, day of death wrong. I'm going to have to go back in and re-record that. How did I get that wrong? So many bloody dates on there. Right, I'm going to copy that and then I'm going to go back in. This is this is why I never release the uh, the script until I'm absolutely certain it's done. Uh, just before the 5th, just before 5pm on the 18th of March, two prisoners went to unlock Mr Castigador's door so that he could collect his evening meal they found him slumped with his right side shaking in an erratic manner you'll like this bit he was distressed and un looked unwell he was breathing and had a white frothy liquid around his mouth and he had been sick uh obviously there's a lot of details here about because uh, they're there to do a full investigation into his death to make sure it wasn't foul play and stuff like that so so uh, online there's a really detailed account of what they did uh, in the end, they realised there was nothing they could do for him, and they let him drift away. 
after his death, the investigator into his case wrote to Mr. Castigador's daughter. Obviously, you remember he's got a daughter and a son to explain the investigation and to ask if she had any matters she wanted the investigation to consider. She did not respond to the letter. I'm guessing that neither of his children ever wanted to speak to him ever again, but you don't know. So, right, let's just go back a bit, go back to the questions. Uh, okay, ten questions. How long did we do? This is that was quite long. Right, let's let's hurry up and shut up. Uh, questions. Question one: What was Victor's middle name? His middle ne- name was Morales. Question number two: What does Castigador mean in Spanish? It means the punisher or enforcer. Question three. Where did the other staff members from the arcade come from? Uh, Yuri came from Chile, Debbie from Kenya, and Palin Morthy from Sri Lanka. Question four. Which alley off Wardour Street did Victor and his gang hide in before the robbery? Answer. Rupert Court. Uh, question five. What did Victor actually do as a job in the Philippines? The only job that we know that he did was he was a diver slash fisherman, which in the Philippines, given the fact that there's it's an archipelago of lots of islands, was quite a common job. Question six. What was the name of Victor's English wife? Uh, that was Jacqueline. Question seven. What flammable liquid were the staff soaked in? That was white spirit. Question eight. Roughly how many... M- Roughly how much money was in the safe? Uh, when they stole it, it was worth it was eight thousand six hundred and eighty-five pounds, which is roughly twenty-one thousand seven hundred pounds today, which is not much. Uh, question nine: Name Victor's accomplices. Their first names were Calvin, Allison, Paul, and Karen. And question ten: Easy one. What height was Victor? He was five foot tall. So. That was it. That was that was Shalot. Uh, good. Okay, that's that done. Um, uh, I'm going to go now. I've got to uh, add an extra bit into this because <laughs> I've got his date of death wrong. That's sod's law. When you're trying to write things, and there's so many multiple th- sources that you're using, and it's it's sod's law. But it's good that I picked it up there. It's rare that rare that I go through something. I go, hang on, that's not right. It's only because of that extra story in there. And I thought, hang on, how could he have? Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna put that in now. There we go. There we go. I've given him an extra an extra uh five years on his life. Well done, Victor, you twat. Right. Let's add that in. Good, okay, that's done. I'm done. I'm gonna have my cup of tea. I'm gonna have no cake because I've got cake. I might go oh there's a Wenzel's down the road, so I might go and have some Wenzel's. Lovely. Anyway, that was the end of the episode. Hope you enjoyed that. There's about I think it's thirteen or four more of these in a run to go and then we'll do uh kind of mid-september ish we'll have a block of mini mile so that i think there's about four of those and then that'll take us to the end of the year Whew, and then i can take a rest oh right that's that done good hope you enjoyed it hope you're all well and stay safe even though the lockdown is kind of easing in places don't be idiots about it make sure you're safe keep your distances wash your hands you know uh, use your sanitizer masks on public transport that kind of thing make sure you wash wash your masks as well or 
use disposable ones if you can buy proper ones and then wash them carefully let's just all be safe and uh let's just not all be complacent because there's a risk that if we're all complacent second spike and then we're all screwed so all be good all stay safe hope you're all well speak to you all soon bye bye ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.